Welcome to the Making Sense Podcast. This is Sam Harris. Okay, let's see here. Brief housekeeping. I've added a conversation track to the Waking Up course. And so I've started to interview teachers there and other experts on topics related to meditation and the nature of mind and living an examined life. Uh, and that's just starting. Generally speaking, these will be teachers and experts I admire and agree with, but also people who have genuine insights but may also believe a lot of cockamamie ideas that I'll want to push back on. And um, there will also be some cautionary tales. And I've just added one of those, the uh, former cult leader, Andrew Cohen, who, um, as I make clear, I don't think is merely a fraud, though he clearly created a lot of harm. I think he's a person who had some real insights and created a lot of harm. Anyway, I found that a very interesting conversation. I think there's a lot to learn from his experience, both as a student and as a teacher. And uh, that kind of thing that's more narrowly focused on the contemplative life and ethics, and certainly meditation, will be on the app rather than the podcast these days. Also, there's a new Android build coming, and it will be entirely new. I've been hearing about all the technical pain Android users have been experiencing. Anyway, a comprehensive fix is in the works, and I will let you know when that launches. What else here? My friend Douglas Murray has a new book out called The Madness of Crowds, and this is a book I am really happy he wrote. I was thinking at one point that I should write a book along these lines. He has done a much better job than I would have. This is really the rejoinder to the wokeness that we've all been waiting for. And it is quite a measured book. Douglas, as you know, has a lacerating wit, so there are many laughs to be had at the expense of the far left, but this is not a shrill or tendentious book at all. This really is just a sanity check, and I found it a joy to read. I'll read you my blurb, just to give you a sense of how much I like this book. We live at a time when many of the luckiest people on earth declare themselves among the most oppressed, while seeking to oppress others in the service of a paradoxical new faith. And no one is so beloved or immaculate that he or she can't be dragged before the altars of this cult and offered up as a fresh sacrifice. In The Madness of Crowds, Douglas Murray shows how the apparent virtues of social justice, intersectionality, and identity politics have begun to stifle honest thinking on nearly every topic. In the process, he displays more courage and wit and basic decency than can be found anywhere among the woke. The book is simply brilliant. Reading it to the end, I felt as though I'd just drawn my first full breath in years. At a moment of collective madness, there is nothing more refreshing, or indeed provocative, than sanity. So uh, I love the book, and uh, I recommend you buy it. It would be great to see this book really succeed. This was a necessary book, and Douglas was certainly the right man for the job. Okay, final announcement here. Uh, if you're supporting the podcast, please make sure you are listening on the private feed, not on the public one. And that means you should go to my website, log in, go to the subscriber content page, 
and subscribe to the private RSS feed. Uh, if you're on mobile, you can generally do that with one click, which will connect to your favorite podcast app. But we're making some changes here on the podcast, and I don't want subscribers to lose access to any content. So um, please make sure you are subscribed if you're a supporter. And uh, you'll know the difference in your podcast player by seeing a red icon for the Making Sense podcast as opposed to a black one. Uh, that is the telltale sign. Anyway, if you have problems, you can contact support at samharris.org and they will help you. And, and one change that's coming and it's coming now is I will, I will start adding an afterword to each podcast interview where I talk a little bit about the conversation you just heard. I won't always do this, perhaps. Sometimes I will have left everything on the field. But if I have any further thoughts, I will put them after the conversation and not up front in the housekeeping. And now for today's podcast. Today I'm speaking with Kathleen Ballou. Kathleen is a historian and the author of the book Bring the War Home, The White Power Movement and Paramilitary America. And uh, she spent 10 years researching and writing this book. She is currently an assistant professor of history at the University of Chicago. And you may have heard her on Fresh Air, as I did. And she's appeared on CBS News and elsewhere. And there was a PBS Frontline documentary based on her work titled Documenting Hate, New American Nazis. Anyway, we cover a lot of ground in this episode. We talk about the white power movement in the United States the difference between white power and white supremacy and white nationalism and white separatism and the militia movement. We talk about the Turner Diaries, the significance of events like Ruby Ridge and Waco, the Christian identity movement, the significance of so-called leaderless resistance, the failures of the justice system in prosecuting white power crimes, and other topics. And now, without further delay, I bring you Kathleen Ballou. I'm here with Kathleen Ballou. Kathleen, thanks for coming on the podcast. Thank you for having me. So we, uh, our job today is to talk about white power and white supremacy and white nationalism and white separatism and other joyful topics. And you've written a book titled Bring the War Home, The White Power Movement and Paramilitary America. And so obviously this, these topics are more and more in the news as we, um, we live yet another year in Trumpistan. Just to get our bearings here, how, how, did you, how do you come to know anything about this stuff? And maybe to start, how would you differentiate the terms I just listed? That's a great place to begin. These terms are distinct, and it's important to understand that they describe a whole range of beliefs, ideologies and ways that people move through the world. So the big category is white supremacy. Now that covers everything from individual belief systems to the different kinds of systems and opportunities that structure daily life in our country. Many scholars have established that America is what we might think of as a white supremacist nation. And by that, I mean simply that there is an unequal distribution of resources, opportunities, and other elements of American life. And we could look at 
incarceration, education, health, all kinds of different metrics we can use to understand that. Now, that is historical in that it's something that was established over time, and we see vestiges of white supremacy in law and policy. Um, and it's also individual in the terms in terms of belief system from person to person. Now, all of that big white supremacy is much more amorphous and distinct from what I write about, which is the white power movement. That is a group of activists. And I suppose I should just say, I use activists not in any kind of positive terminology, but simply to describe someone who is taking action to bring about a social and political change. Right. And the people that I write about are members of the Ku Klux Klan, neo-Nazi groups, skinheads, militia groups. Some are radical tax protesters and some are other kind of stripes of anti-state belief. These groups came together in the aftermath of the Vietnam War and set out to wage war on the federal government. So what I write about is the period from the end of the Vietnam War to the Oklahoma City bombing that really set the stage for the politics we find ourselves confronting in the present. Yeah, yeah. So I want to talk about the origins of all this, but you know, hopefully we will have something to say about the, the nature of what's happening in the present. So let's let's talk about well first you just made a few distinctions that I, that we should clarify. So you mentioned a bunch of these groups, neo-Nazis, the KKK, the groups that people have heard about like the, the Aryan Nations and the Order. You uh, alluded to to tax evaders, I guess I guess those are sovereign citizens. These groups are not all identical ideologically are they i mean how do you how do you parse this landscape and and is there a f- now a formal connection between all of these miscreants and, and and do they help one another even if they don't totally agree so this is something that the scholarship missed for quite a long time partly through using an overly rigid idea of what a social movement should be and should look like Many social movements in the late 20th century are fragmented in the way I'm about to describe to you. Um, The other thing that people do, and I think this is a very natural sort of human approach to a a belief system that you find foreign or objectionable, is to try to sort it into categories. So there's a lot of early scholarship that's sort of trying to figure out, okay, how many of these people are Nazis? How many are skinheads? How many are Klansmen? And which symbols exactly should be used by which group and exactly what variety of ideology do you find in each place? And that's all valuable to know. And certainly there are differences between some of these groups. But what I do as a historian is try to understand how this movement worked for people who were members of it. Um, And what you see on the ground is not strict divisions between these groups. What you see actually is a very vibrant circulation of people from from group to group and between ideologies. And the way people in this movement describe their own activism is very similar. So one person said something along the lines of, suppose we're all Christian. It's like I'm Church of Christ and that guy over there is Baptist, right? But we're all Christian. Hmm. Others describe it as they're all in the armed forces, but they're simply in the army and the navy and things like this. So it's important to have a mode of understanding that allows us to see not only the distinctions, but also the commonality and the fact that people moved at great frequency between these different groups and belief systems. But are they all white supremacists or are they, and are they all white separatists? Are they all white nationalists? Do do they all, I mean, I guess the the one that stands out immediately to me, I, I know very little about them, but 
like the sovereign citizens, are, are they even racists? Aren't they just tax evading nutcases? Well, the first thing I would say is we probably want to get away from thinking about nutcase and miscreant and words like that mm-hmm. as early as possible. Because even though the people who are in this movement have ideas that you or I might not agree with, they're acting with a pretty coherent worldview and set of beliefs that makes what they're doing legible. The thing with the militia group... I guess I've seen too many of them on uh, daytime television throwing chairs at Geraldo Rivera or screaming at Sally Jesse Raphael. Oh, yes, you've looked at those ones. Yes, they were definitely... I'm dating myself. Yeah, for a little while in, in, in the moment I studied, they were really doing a lot of those talk show appearances. And certainly there are people within this movement who I think we could all agree are motivated by various kinds of mental disturbances as well as political ideology. There's one man I write about testified in front of court that he could levitate and and speak to God and things like this, but he was a leader in the movement. Anyhow, the militia movement is a little bit more difficult to grapple with than the earlier period that is really at the heart of my study. And what I'm talking about is at the end of the 1980s, there's this big movement of white power activity into militias. But the militia movement is bigger than white power. And not all of the militia movement should be classified as white power. It's not kind of a one-to-one transition. What it is, is that the white power momentum, which is substantial at the end of the 1980s and includes a major sort of upsurge of network organizing groups, weapons, and money all ends up in the militias. So what I'm kind of writing against is the idea that the white power movement simply disappears at the end of the 1980s, which many people had thought. Mm. Instead, it ends up within the militia movement. So what does that mean? First of all, there are groups of militia men and individuals in the movement that are not acting out of the same kind of overt racial animus that is what we're dealing with in the white power movement. And some of the sovereign citizens' activity might be classified in that way. However, there are also a lot of cases where that kind of racial, what would we call it, race neutrality is actually simply a veneer to make white power activism more acceptable. And that's an old strategy that goes, you know, way back at least to the Vietnam War, if not into the early 20th century. So I think we have to be very cautious with the militia movement but certainly it is an area that, that deserves more study. Right. And if I recall, this is what made understanding Timothy McVeigh and, and Ruby Ridge and those incidents that we'll talk about a little confusing because it was, it was entangled with this larger militia movement. I think Timothy McVeigh was associated with the, the Michigan militia at one point, and it just wasn't clear what was, what was what and what the ideology actually was. Exactly. And McVeigh, as we can talk about, is a pretty clear case of white power activism. But many cases are less clear than that, especially in the militia years. Let me circle back before we move on to another part of your question that I think is a really good one, which is how we think about those other terms, white nationalism and white separatism. So white, these are often muddled terms. And I'll just start by saying that white nationalism is the idea that there is something inherently racially known and held in the category of the nation. So the idea that whiteness is an inherent part of what makes the United States what it is, and that that the admission of other cultures will inherently disturb or weaken the nation over time. Um, And in terms of the study of extremist groups, the best example of white nationalism, I I would argue, the one I use for teaching, is the Ku Klux Klan in the 1920s. 
Now, that's a very familiar example, probably, to a lot of your listeners. That's the one most people study in high school. It's also huge. It was 4 million people. It was 10% of the state of Indiana. And very famously, this is where you get the pictures of the the Klansmen wearing white robes and hoods and marching on the National Mall in Washington, D.C., but with their faces uncovered because it was socially acceptable. Now, what that Klan was about was state participation. And we know this because a ton of them got elected to office. (laughs) Yeah. They were about state participation. Their slogans were things like 100% American, America for Americans, things like this. They were profoundly anti, anti-Black and anti-Semitic, but they were also anti-immigrant and, and had a lot of other interests. Okay, so that is white nationalism. That's not what we're talking about from 1983 forward for people on the fringe. Because from 1983 forward, there's a huge pivot in this movement partly fueled by the sense of betrayal felt in the aftermath of the Vietnam War, in which the white power movement is instead setting out to overthrow the federal government, to create race war, and eventually to found a white nation. So white separatism is better for what we're talking about. But even separatism is sort of a few steps short of the ideology that's really the most popular and biggest animating push in this movement which is not only separatism, I mean, they do pursue separatism, meaning the demarcation of a white homeland within the United States. But the end game is not separatism. The end game is overthrow of the United States and the creation of an all-white polity that eventually they, they envision might take over the world. Right. So, so they, they do go that far. They have a kind of Fourth Reich, let's complete Hitler's project kind of ideology. They do. And and the best place to sort of see and understand it is in a dystopian novel that becomes a sort of lodestar for the movement called the Turner Diaries, which right. really lays this out as an imaginative path forward. I mean, one thing that's really interesting about this movement from a scholarly perspective is how they think they can possibly do it because it's a tiny group of people, right? It's a fringe movement. And and they are setting out to to do what they say in this novel is like a it's something like like a gnat assassinating an elephant. They want to overthrow the most militarized super state in the history of the world. Mm. So the Turner Diaries is so important, not because of its you know writerly qualities, but because it really lays out how they could hope to achieve something that radical. Right. Yeah. So, and as you point out in your book, not only does this movement get naturally seeded by disaffected soldiers coming back from from wars not just i mean the, the most relevant one here is or the most proximate one is the vietnam war but you you point out that that is it, in the aftermath of basically every war we fought this has been a phenomenon where some number of soldiers albeit a tiny percentage take their grievances against the state the the, the, US, the US government and direct them back home and i mean this, this is hence the title of your book bring the war home can you say something about that? And then we can just talk about how the origins here and, and just how many people are involved. Absolutely. So this is actually how I got into this project. I wanted to do, when I was set up to write a dissertation, I wanted to study the long legacies of racial violence in the United States. We are uniquely without a sort of shared public process around reckoning with the long violence that has characterized the nation. And at that time, the only sort of thing like that that had happened was a 
totally non-governmental Truth and Reconciliation Commission in Greensboro, North Carolina. Um, this happened in 2005 around an event that, that had happened in 1979 in which a united caravan of Klansmen and neo-Nazis opened fire on a leftist anti-Klan march um, and killed five people, wounded several more. And the thing that the perpetrators and the people aligned with these ideologies said in the TRC proceedings was, I killed communists in Vietnam, so why wouldn't I kill them here? Now, I couldn't stop thinking about this. This is a profound collapse of time and space and people. It mixes up home home and, and battlefront. It mixes up wartime and peacetime. It collapses everybody communist into the same kind of racial and subjugated category of death. This is enormously meaningful. And what I wondered is if this was going to be a story about sort of, you know, a Rambo story of veterans returning home and creating violence at home. It turns out that it's really not that simple at all and that this isn't a problem of veterans. What we see indeed is that there is a surge in this kind of vigilante violence after every major return from combat. But it turns out that that effect actually goes across age groups, across gender, across categories of people who do and don't serve in warfare. All of us become more violent in the aftermath of war. Now, that raises a whole lot of questions. You could go to sort of a Max Weber kind of analysis about the monopoly of violence and, and whether the state's role in creating warfare creates this aftermath. We can go to individuals bringing the war back with them. I think I, I tend to think it's a combination of a whole lot of different complex factors. But what we know for sure is that we see this reverberation effect in the aftermath of violence and that this tiny, tiny percentage of returning veterans brings back with them things like munitions expertise that are then used to escalate the body count of white power violence. The war also um, creates a paramilitary culture in the 1980s in the United States. You know, people that I write about with these fringe beliefs are hardly the only people who think that that war is the major cultural event of their lifetime. We can just look at the outsurge of movies and camo fatigue, you know, clothes and paintball ranges and all kinds of other things like that. So they're also capitalizing on this big cultural moment of the 1980s. Yeah, and also you get the um, the increased militarization of police forces and then the response to that, I mean, the, the right-wing outrage over the apparent misapplication of, of state force. So you have I mean, the, the two events that you write about that were so galvanizing to this movement were Ruby Ridge and Waco where you have, you know, essentially military snipers and, and in, in the case of Waco, a ton of military hardware intruding upon the lives of somewhat deranged but as yet nonviolent people and essentially escalating these situations into kind of mass murders if you view it from the side of, of uh, those who view the, you know, the Branch Davidians and, and um, the people at Ruby Ridge as, as pure victims. Maybe that's a, a good place to start. I mean, wh- how did what happened with Ruby Ridge and, and Waco, and, and what did that do to um, the white power movement? Sure. And we should think of Ruby Ridge and Waco as related, but sort of different kinds of events. And the other thing I want to just interject before we start on that story is that the kinds of paramilitary policing that came into public view and public sort of became objects of public discussion because of Ruby Ridge and Waco 
that kind of policing had already been used on a lot of civilians in the United States because counterinsurgency warfare was also developed sort of through um, experimental methods in communities of color and then in Vietnam before it was used in this way. Mm. So what's new about Waco and Ruby Ridge is mostly that it's televised and that people are focusing on it in the way that they do. And that's partly because the people at the receiving end of this violence are white. So what happens in Ruby Ridge is that there's a, well, so Ruby Ridge is a case of a white power activist, Randy Weaver, and his family had moved to the area to become survivalists. They built a rough cabin. They followed Christian identity practice, which is a white power theology. Randy Weaver ran for sheriff on a white power platform, and they had visited Aryan nations several times, or at least twice or something of that kind. At one of these Aryan nations meetings, a government informant tried to get Randy Weaver to also become a government informant by selling him a illegal weapon that had been modified to be, I think, a quarter of an inch short. It's hard not to sympathize with the idea that Randy Weaver and people who, people of all political stripes actually, can look at this case and sort of think this was dirty dealing on the part of the government. It's kind of entrapment. I mean, yes, I'm not a legal scholar, but entrapment is certainly the word that came to mind the first time I read this case. A lot of other things happened by way of miscommunication, including giving him the wrong court date and then responding when he didn't show up to the court date, although he had also decided not to go. So there's a whole bunch of sort of bad faith effort around this. And then government snipers encircle his cabin to try to demand that he come to court. But the Weaver family, all of them, including the children, are highly armed. And this turns into a multi-day standoff with several people killed in the course of events, including Vicki Weaver killed as she's holding her infant daughter in her arms inside of the cabin. And for reasons we can talk about, her death is among the people lost, her death is sort of singularly important to this movement for a number of symbolic reasons. Mm. The thing that I find most interesting about this is that Ruby Ridge is kind of the moment where we can see that the white power movements, paramilitarization, and by that I just mean the way that it's becoming more and more like an army. It's using military-grade weapons um, and uniforms, At this point, Klansmen have largely abandoned the white robes and hoods and started using camo fatigues instead. They're using things of this kind. We see that paramilitarization colliding with a concurrent paramilitary paramilitarization of policing. So there's a picture that I found in the archive where a group of five skinheads was on their way up to the mountaintop during the siege with the intention of resupplying the Weaver family with more guns and ammo. And they're, they're caught, they're detained and arrested by the, the ATF, which is alcohol, tobacco, and firearms. And there's a photograph of a ATF officer arresting one of the skinheads down on the floor with his knee on, on, on the back. And in the photograph, they're wearing the same uniforms. They're indistinguishable from each other, except that one of them has an ATF jacket. Um, and it's really something that that two completely different elements of society, one being supposedly a neutral arbiter of kind of state law and the other being an anti-state movement, could come to be outfitted in such a similar way. So all of that gets really cooked into a frenzy by Waco, which is not a white power event per se, 
the Branch Davidians who are surrounded and and put under siege at Waco are actually a multiracial compound, but they are kind of an apocalyptic group of, I guess we could say, fellow travelers with the white power movement. Mm. And certainly the white power movement understands it as a white power event. And in fact, in some of the magazines within the white power movement, they show only the photographs of Waco victims who are white victims. Um, they omit the other people. Mm-hmm. So it's sort of put forward in that way. And and Timothy McVeigh was actually standing there. I mean, this was like a, a month-long FBI ATF siege. Yeah. And many people traveled, um, among them Timothy McVeigh, to just kind of bear witness to this atrocity in the making with the kind of misapplication of, of, of state power, whether or not David Koresh himself was a white supremacist. Yes. And unlike Ruby Ridge, which is very remote and on the top of a mountain, and most of the images coming out were satellite images, Waco was on the Texas prairie. So the, the cameras could watch everything that happened, including when federal um, armored vehicles rolled in and set fire to the compound or the compound somehow caught fire. This is still a matter of some argument. But the the siege, the Waco siege, became a sort of meeting point for people in the white power movement. Lewis Beam, who is one of the key leaders of this movement, came out to the to the siege and um, asked questions of many of the law enforcement officers, tried to get press credentials. Timothy McVeigh made the trip. McVeigh was not there when the the fire happened at the end, although there are reports of him watching it on television with tears running down his face. And Significantly, when we're thinking about these long aftermaths of warfare, the armored vehicles used to end the Waco siege were very, very similar to the one that he manned, that McVeigh manned in the Gulf War in the Big Red One Infantry Division. Just to close the loop on on Christianity here, so so the Branch Davidians weren't Christian identitarians in, in quite the, the same way as some of these other groups are, but there is a, a kind of apocalyptic Christianity organizing some of this movement, right? And, and, I, and I, if I recall from your book, the end of the Cold War seemed to signal to you know, the people who have this cast of thinking that we were kind of entering the end times, and this was the moment where you know, the white supremacist Christian ethnostate needed to be built. So Christian identity, for listeners who might not have heard about this before, is a political theology that holds that white people are the true lost tribe of Israel and that everyone else are racial enemies. Everyone else, uh, people of color, Jewish people, anyone who is not white and part of this tribe, this faith holds have descended from either beasts or Satan, depending on where you are in which strand of the theology. Mm-hmm. And I'm simplifying a little bit for expediency, but I think this is a fair depiction. The interesting thing about Christian identity in terms of how it operationalizes this movement, is that unlike evangelical churches, which are also gaining huge memberships in the 1980s, which are also becoming very politicized and very focused on the apocalypse, unlike the evangelicals, Christian identity has no rapture. Right. There is no promise that the faithful will be spared this hideous battle at the end of the world. Instead, the faithful are supposed to survive the battle, so they become survivalists, and they are tasked with clearing the world of enemies, which again is all non-white people and Jews, and so clearing the world of enemies so that Christ can return. 
So what Christian identity does for the people in this movement who believe in it is to transfigure this whole thing into a holy war. Now, this thing about the apocalypse, though, is way bigger than the white power movement. Yeah. And I think that the end of the, the Cold War is significant. This is kind of the direction that my next book might be going. The end of the Cold War is significant in this way, not only for people on the fringe or for evangelicals, but for a whole lot of people in the United States. Because if you think about Cold War America, people had really come to live with the idea of the imminent end of the world or the imminent threat of life presented by nuclear warfare. Um, we can think about those duck and tuck cover drills and the videos and all of the different ways that people were sort of primed in civil society to think about how that could kind of happen at any time. And then that layered on top of this religious belief, which again ranges from evangelical churches all the way to the Christian identity fringe. So what happens in 1989 is super interesting because the enemy disappears, the Soviet enemy disappears with the end of the Cold War, but the belief doesn't disappear. So there's this whole group of people who suddenly have this intense belief in the imminent apocalypse, but this kind of, it's a hole in the story. So for people in the white power movement, a lot of people simply replace the state into that kind of missing enemy slot. My sense is that in the 90s, this is kind of a crisis of, of narrative for a lot of people beyond this movement. So in the aftermath of Waco, we have Timothy McVeigh, you know, highly motivated, it would seem, to take the war home. And at that point, you know, just prior to the Oklahoma City bombing, do you have a sense of how many people were part of this movement? Yes. So... This is, a, this is a tricky thing to count, and um, I'm going to explain my best estimate, and then I'm going to tell you some of the problems with it. Historians and sociologists have kind of thought about this in concentric circles, which is to say that, as I was saying earlier, social movements have kind of varying levels of degree of participation, if you will. So you can think about concentric circles like a bullseye, and in the middle, are only about 25,000 people. Now, those are the people who live and breathe the movement. They marry other people in the movement. They get rides to the airport from other people in the movement. They go to all the rallies. They organize their lives around this. They move to the Northwest sometimes for movement reasons. They have children and homeschool them in the way prescribed by the movement. Okay. Outside of that, there's another ring of people that's around 150 to 175,000 people. Those people do public-facing stuff, like attend rallies, subscribe to literature, regularly read the newspapers. Outside of that is another 450,000 people. And those people don't themselves contribute money or time, but they do regularly read the literature. So what we can imagine is that there is another more diffuse group of people outside of that who would not read something that says, you know, official newspaper of the Knights of the KKK, but who might agree with many of the ideas that are presented in it. So what we have to think about is the way that this kind of model of organizing both moves ideas from that hardcore center out into the mainstream and pulls in recruitable people towards the middle. Mm. Okay, now, now that I've said that, that's our best estimate. One other thing is at play, which some sociologists discovered, which is that after 1983, this movement is using a strategy called leaderless resistance. Now, this is actually very, very similar to how we now understand cell-style terror. 
And I think a lot of people will think it's familiar because of, of all the things we've learned after 9-11. Leaderless resistance simply holds that people can agree on a common set of targets and objectives and then work together to achieve them through violence, but without communication with other selves or with central leadership. And leaderless resistance in the white power movement came about mostly because they were so frustrated with FBI infiltration in the, in the civil rights era and because they thought it would make it more difficult to prosecute them in court. And it did make both of those operations more difficult. But the bigger legacy of leaderless resistance has been that we lost our entire conception of this as a social movement. And I can talk more about that in a minute. In a minute. But what, what this means for numbers is that after 1983, this movement is no longer interested in trying to get you know 10,000 people to march down Main Street. This movement is interested in trying to get 12 people who are willing to rob a bank or set off a bomb. So what we have to remember is that after 1983, decreasing numbers actually doesn't mean decreasing violence or activity. So you've sketched a, a picture of something like you know, 700,000 people who are in these these central rings of the of the movement, and you know, you know, twenty five thousand of whom are actually you know, soldiers or consider themselves soldiers. Do you have a sense of you know the, that outer ring of of sympathizers? I mean, maybe there's a ring beyond that. I'm just trying to imagine how many people in the U.S. when they saw Oklahoma City thought, "Yeah, that's that was probably a good idea." You know, that had to happen. I, I understand what. McVeigh was up to there. How many people would you think were were untroubled by the preschool kids who were killed there? I mean, I just because there's a picture. I just want to know what we're talking about when we're talking about you know murderous white supremacy and its sympathizers. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's a really interesting question, especially because you know none of these answers are ever simple, even for people in the movement. There's a lot of argument in the movement about the e- efficacy of Oklahoma City because of the children. That's a really hard mm. pill for people in the movement to swallow because white children are so central to what they think they're doing. Maybe that's a confounding variable. Maybe maybe it's just we need a, a different example. But So let's just focus on, on Oklahoma City for a moment. We can summarize what, what Oklahoma City was Briefly, I mean, people will be fairly familiar with it, but I guess a, a few things to point out. One is that it was not totally clear that McVeigh was a white supremacist, or at least it was not as as clear as it might have been. He's not. He doesn't have. He doesn't have a swastika tattooed on his arms that I recall, and he didn't claim to be part of a white power movement. Right? I think he even claimed to have just acted on his own. And you're now saying that this is part of the plan to, to actually hide the fact that you you had Confederates. And I think many people think he had, you know, several Confederates who went unprosecuted and un- undiscovered, and there was very little will to to go digging further there. And and then there was a fair amount of conspiracy thinking around that. And I remember Gore Vidal wrote pieces in or at least one piece in Vanity Fair. And um, so just I guess give give me your your take on Oklahoma City and 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 what it meant and and what it did to the movement. Sure. So before we do Oklahoma City, I want to give you one more piece of information mm-hmm. about kind of the relative size and importance of the movement. 
And that is simply a comparative example when we think about fringe movements in the United States and what is and isn't important to study. So the John Birch Society is much more studied and much more understood than the movement that we're talking about today. Hmm. The John Birch Society, as some of you may know, is a anti-communist kind of Cold War era extremist group that sometimes borders on violence and that had a lot of political attention paid to it for a minute there. John Birch is usually covered in textbooks as an example of extremism. Um, the John Birch Society had about 100,000 people at its peak. Right. So we're talking about a movement that's larger and has inarguably more weaponry and military training than John Birch. So for me, the question becomes, why didn't we know about it? Why didn't we understand? And how did we forget? Because all of the things that I write about in my book are examples that were documented at the time, like the, like the McVeigh case, right? The, the events that I talk about in the book were all covered in the press. There was footage of Klan paramilitary training camps on Good Morning America, the Today Show, and things like that. The Greensboro massacre was the subject of a Saturday Night Live sketch. This was in the zeitgeist. People understood that things like this were happening. What we lacked was some kind of apparatus for putting them together into the same story. So that's the thing that I think is really interesting, especially because when we think about this phrase, the lone wolf, it was popularized by these activists. They deliberately wanted to disappear. Now, one example of this is the Oklahoma City bombing, which killed 168 people. What we're talking about is, of course, Timothy McVeigh's a fertilizer bombing of the Alfred P. Murrah Federal Building, Oklahoma City in 1995. Now, that is the largest deliberate mass casualty on U.S. soil between the bombing of Pearl Harbor and 9-11. But it is not understood. We don't have a durable public understanding of this as being a work of ideology and politics rather than kind of one person's madness. We don't learn about it in school. We don't think of it as a milestone moment for the United States, like when we teach a history survey. And I think it's really interesting that we've missed it. Now, I think that, you know, of course, there's a lot of conspiracy theory around it and multiple bomb theories and John Doe theories and all kinds of things. To me, I think the persuasive thing is actually in the historical archive. And to understand what happened here, we have to go back to another trial in Fort Smith, Arkansas in 1987-88. So there, the federal government attempted to try 13 white power activists and leaders on charges, including seditious conspiracy to overthrow the federal government. That trial uh, had a huge evidentiary base and included the testimony of a whole bunch of people who had made bargains with the movement, with um, federal Um, investigators to testify against their fellow activists. It included a ton of seized weapons, including things like anti-tank guns and grenades and landmines. It included the published writing of people who said they were going out to overthrow the government. But it had a lot of problems. And I think think reasonable people can agree that there were issues with this trial, uh, including but not limited to Two of the jurors had romantic relationships with defendants during trial. (laughs) That's always delicate. That's (laughs) that's sort of a a problem for a, I don't know, impartial jury, I would say. There were chain of custody issues that excluded a ton of relevant evidence. 
And there were, they were also trying this, this case in an area of the country that had had enormous and hugely publicized stories about the white power movement, but then they excluded all jurors who had even ever heard of the white power movement. So essentially that was like people who read the newspaper were excluded on spec. So after this trial, which was a huge disaster for the federal government, I mean, the the headlines about the acquittal at this trial were things like jubilant racists win trial. This was very embarrassing for the federal government. Hmm. Um, And it was followed, as we just saw, by Ruby Ridge and Waco, which were also, you know, tragedies, but also PR nightmares for the federal government. So after the sedition trial, there was actually a policy change in which the FBI decided we will no longer investigate these kinds of acts of violence as tied to a broader movement. We will investigate them only as individual crimes. And that was the policy in place when McVeigh bombed the federal building. So it is, of course, in hindsight, very difficult to know exactly what the shape of that act of violence was and who was involved because the investigation never happened. Yeah, I guess so. One question I have, though, is around this notion that a lone wolf is never a lone wolf, or that we should we should always suspect that a lone wolf is part of a larger movement. So, like, take the case of McVeigh, right? So we all know what it's like to see a white supremacist on television, and uh, you know, interviewed or given an opportunity to state his views, and they're not shy about stating these views. I mean, they're, they're proud of their racism, right? They want to use the platform to further spread these ideas. And we know what those vile chatterboxes are like. And then you have someone like McVeigh, who, if he expressed any racism, I, I mean, I'm sure, you know, there are things in his backstory that suggest he was, he was racist, but I recently watched his the one interview he gave from Death Row to, to, for 60 Minutes, and he didn't express anything like that there. And when, when given an opportunity to account for what he had done, he, he put it in terms that were really entirely focused on the misapplication of, of state power. I mean, he said, he said unlike the, the example you gave of the the veteran who said, you know, I killed, killed communists over there, and, you know, why not kill them here? He gave a, a certainly less white supremacist gloss on what he had done. He said, listen, I was in Iraq, and I, you know, I, I killed people over there, and I got medals for it. But, you know, what was I doing over there killing people? You know, if I, I, you know that wasn't my country. You know, that, he seemed to be questioning the whole premise that state power should be telescoped elsewhere. And he said, you know, if I had been an Iraqi, you know, I would have been fighting me, you know, anyone who showed up in my country. And so, and then, and then the only time he became animated in this interview was when Ruby Ridge and Waco came up. And then you could see how disturbed he was and how justified he felt in responding to what he considered this, this intrusive state violence. And again, I, I really, I don't doubt that there was a racist undercurrent to his concerns there. But if he really was a a hardcore white supremacist, why not take up those kinds of opportunities to talk about the future of the white race and the desecration of white women and all the the, the other litany of concerns that you get from these people in other contexts? That's a very valid question. And I think this is where I think that 
not to be a super nerdy historian about it, but the history is where we can really see something else. It's interesting. This Well, let me start by saying this. You sort of entered the question by thinking about, do we have to see each one of these attacks as not a lone wolf attack? Let me just add one piece to that, because the problem I see with that is that it becomes truly unfalsifiable. I mean, it becomes like that's, you know, the scene in the life of Brian where, you know, they find the wrong Messiah and the guy says, I'm not the Messiah. And someone says, that's exactly what the Messiah would say, right? I mean, it's- yeah, that's what, I mean, yeah. And it also, um, you know, not all mass attack in the United States that's carried out by people who live here has to do with this particular movement. Um, I'm talking about a subset of mass violence. Um, I'm talking about the ones that are politically motivated and coordinated through a movement. That's not all of them, but it's a lot of them. And we haven't done enough to understand what that is and why that's motivating people to violence. Now, McVeigh, here's the, okay. So there's a couple of, well, let me just, let me just start with what we know about him. Um, And I'll just start with a methodological distinction, which is historians, a lot of the time, really distrust what people say about something after the fact. We prefer to see what they did. And McVeigh's life gives us some evidence that his, you know, public comments sort of don't show, including, as you mentioned, his affiliation with the Michigan militia. He also wrote letters to his sister saying he was going underground and encouraging her to continue above ground activism. And he was going to sort of go off the grid. He had attempted contacts or contacts with a whole bunch of different white power groups, including the Arizona Patriots, the National Alliance, um, which, by the way, is the one headed by the man who wrote the Turner Diaries and the Mm -hmm. separatist compound at Elohim City, which had sheltered a whole bunch of people on the lam. who were members of the order and other white power terrorist groups that were organized in leaderless resistance style. He chose the date of the bombing on the anniversary of the Waco siege. That's pretty well known, but also on the execution date of a prominent white power activist who had once targeted that same building in Oklahoma City. Um, He once lived with somebody um, in Michigan who knew the Murrah building so well he could draw it from memory. This building had been in the crosshairs of this movement since 1983. This is all a lot. This is a lot of evidence that he is deeply connected to this movement. The other piece that I recall is that he was quite a devotee of the Turner Diaries, which you mentioned as being kind of an organizing manifesto. Yeah, and not just a devotee. He sold it on the gun show circuit. Yeah. I mean, he he read about the the actions of the order, and we know that because he stole the library book copy of, of a popular history about that group and instructed his people uh, in his life to read it. Um, so we know he knew about this movement. We know he was in contact. We know he was interested. He was following a movement strategy when he wrote his sister that letter and said he was going underground. And for him to follow the strategy of leaderless resistance fully, the full culmination of that strategy would be not to take anybody else down with him. Mm. So read through the history of the movement, I think there is persuasive evidence that he was deeply involved in this movement. Now, if you're McVeigh and you believe in the strategy and you believe in a Turner Diaries model of violence, which is that the bombing itself is not the end goal. The goal is to bring people into the movement, right? 
if you are him and you think the most effective way to do that is by talking about the state, which was, by the way, very effective, there was a big upsurge in militia groups after the Oklahoma City bombing, then I, I mean, I think he was making a strategic choice to talk about, about that part of his belief system. But that's not separate in this movement from all of the rest of it. So let's say another word or two about the Turner Diaries, because if I recall, he actually the bombing itself, the Oklahoma City bombing was reminiscent of a bombing described in the book, right? Like the whole fertilizer bomb strategy was depicted in the book. Yes. In the book, I believe they're bombing the FBI central headquarters. The book was written in the late 1970s. So this was before computers and the uh, revolutionaries in the book are out to destroy the FBI records so that the FBI can't surveil their activities. Um, but it's the same kind of bomb. And like McVeigh's action, there are white victims in the book. And there's a pretty long section on kind of the death of one beautiful white woman and how mm. Turner, the protagonist of the book, learns that there have to, like, he has to be prepared for collateral damage if he wants to, you know, create white revolution. So the book, I should just say, is sort of, it's an 80s. I, I would say the long 80s utopian novel. And I should say too that by utopian, I mean for them, not for me. Right. But what it lays out is it presents itself as a artifact of a world where this white revolution has already happened. So there are about to be Turner Diaries spoilers. I'm going to tell you some things about the book. I, it's not really spoilers. This is not a pleasant read. I don't encourage people to go and read the Turner Diaries for the literary experience of the thing. But the, the novel ends when Turner is sent on a suicide mission to fly a nuclear weapon into the Pentagon on an airplane, which is actually, you know, now has such strong resonances of 9-11. But of course, this was before all of that. The postscript of the novel I, sort of lays out all of the changes that have happened after the successful revolution. And there are also textual insertions like footnotes to explain things. Um, so like, for instance, they have to explain to the reader what feminism is, because in this new world, there is no such thing as feminism. So the the postscript lays out that after Turner's, you know, nuclear bombing of the Pentagon and a whole bunch of other nuclear warfare, what it describes is the way that white revolutionaries are able to provoke a U.S.-Soviet missile exchange and with Israel, I believe, and that in the aftermath, they're able to seize power and then carry out a mass genocide of all non-white people the world over. Once I assigned it for a class and um, the university bookstore automatically ordered the book because they do that. Right, they just right. And I got a letter thanking me for ensuring the future of white children. So um, get a used copy if you would like to check this out or even better, a library copy. Yes, yes. We, we support breaking the copyright of Nazis everywhere. Okay, so just to summarize here, we so we hit the... Oklahoma City bombing was widely understood, uh, and we think rightly, as kind of the ultimate act thus far of, of white supremacist terror. And it exemplifies this, this leaderless resistance structure where the, you know, the, the movement is insulated against any really effective investigation because the, the movement is it's not even acknowledged to exist on some level. And so, you know, you as a social scientist notice that we basically forget that we even have a white supremacy problem for quite some time. And 
Many people seem to have forgotten about it, you know, all the way up until Charlottesville, essentially, where we, you know, we have uh, some hundreds of guys with tiki torches reminding us that there's a a fairly energetic strand of racism and anti-Semitism still alive in this country. And Trump seems to have given comfort, if not an actual voice, to this movement. So just let's just jump forward into the present. What do you think the state of the movement is now? So first, I do want to keep saying white power or white nationalists rather than white supremacy, okay. just because I think that uh, white supremacy as a category gets us into a whole bunch of misunderstanding. Just for clarity's sake, just reiterate why you think that's a problem. What's the door to misunderstanding you're trying to close? I mean, if, if we wanted to talk about like the, the largest violence of white supremacy, we have to think about, I don't know, atomic weapons and warfare and genocide and displacements and things like that. This is a different thing. I want, what I want to say is um, I'm talking about the fringe movement of, of yeah. what we've talked about as the far right. So white nationalism and white separatism together, um, but white power activism from 1983 forward, which is to say anti-government, white extremist violence. Although I guess that differentiation will indicate an area where we may disagree, or certainly an area of my concern, because I, and this does sort of connect back to the, the potential unfalsifiability of, of the leaderless resistance framing. I mean, so the, the issue I think, you know, I've confronted personally, and I, I've just noticed in general now, I don't know wh- at, which, at what point this started, but there's, there's a possibility of a moral panic around things like white supremacy and, and racism generally, and and then the the you know our, our our Nazi detectors can become poorly calibrated, and this has happened, for instance, over at the Southern Poverty Law Center, which you know used to be the flagship organization that would tell us you know who's a Nazi and who isn't, but now basically they they seem to have run out of Nazis and they find Nazis everywhere, and you know they you know they have put me on their hate watch page for merely having Charles Murray on this podcast, uh, and they famously or now infamously put my friend Majid Nawaz on a list of anti-Muslim extremists when, in fact, he's a Muslim reformer and they, they had to pay him over $3 million for that gaffe. They've kind of gone nuts over there. And, and there are many examples of this. I mean, they're, they're, you know, beyond the Southern Property Law Center, but it's, it is the most extreme case of this kind of thing happening. Is, and this is, this is actually contemporaneous with some of the history we've been talking about, we had that satanic panic episode in, in the U.S. where for many, many news cycles, I mean, some years, we had people telling us, you know, getting on television, telling us just what a problem we had with satanic cults and ritual abuse and even child sacrifice. And, you know, I'm not sure where the scholarship is on that now. You know, I'm sure there were 15 people in the woods somewhere practicing Satanism. But it seems to be that, that we really never had a satanic cult problem in this country. So I just, don't, I, I just want to flag that, if, that there's, this, there's a general concern here around just making sure we are clear about you know, who's a Nazi, who's just a, a, a normal racist, and who's just someone who made an off-color joke and you know, now is getting canceled on Twitter for it. Well, yeah, and I think that we are in a very complex moment that's going to take a lot of people's good faith efforts to unravel. But I, I guess 
Well, the first thing I would say is that the question of the relative importance of the SPLC and other watchdogs is a very historically informed question that leads us back to this bigger problem of the white supremacy that's sort of not a matter of individual belief. We can be as enlightened as we can be and still have white supremacy in our systems in our country. And by that, I mean the reason that these watchdogs were so important in the period that I work with is because the government wasn't really surveilling as much as it could have been. Mm. And that's because if we go back to the history of COINTELPRO, which is the FBI counterintelligence project, scholars have discovered that, um, you know, this is this is the period when the FBI was doing some really dirty infiltration and using agents provocateur and all kinds of incentives and entrapments and things like this that were eventually shuttered because they were so unethical and illegal. But even in that period, when, when the FBI had basically carte blanche to try to disrupt groups on the fringe, it put enormously more resources and time and manpower into trying to disrupt the left and especially callers, scholar, uh, people of color on the left than people on the right. So as frustrated as the Klan got by FBI infiltration in, the, in that period, they weren't getting killed the way that, say, Black Panthers were in these sort of FBI actions. So that unequal distribution of resources is a systemic problem um, that has nothing to do, well, that is distinct from interpersonal animus or racism. Yeah. That systemic problem is what we have to kind of reckon with if we want to solve this within our society. So the reason the watchdogs were important, the reason the SPLC was so important is because of the failure of other systems because of white supremacy. Similarly, the SPLC's civil suits, which were I mean, some of the most effective stops to white power organizing in the 1980s, like the the SPLC sued the Klan um, over creating a paramilitary army that harassed Vietnamese refugees in Texas. Um, they sued a, a Klan group that lynched a young black man in Alabama. They got consent decrees that limited white power activists from um, publishing hate materials and organizing. Those things were really effective, and the reason they were so important in history is because the criminal trials were failing all over the place. And the reason we couldn't get any criminal verdicts is because we had things like peremptory challenges that let people dismiss all juries of, of all jurors of color with no cause. So we have to think about the, you know, the, the central role of watchdogs is there because we didn't have adequate policing, adequate surveillance, and adequate justice system response to this violence from the beginning. Mm. Now, I, I am a historian. I'm not a pundit. Um, I'm not an expert on the recent activities of the SPLC. I have worked in their archive. I will disclose to you, but I, you know, I, I work in the earlier period. Um, I will say that watchdog groups have a different set of interests than you know, a public observer, a journalist, a lawyer, a policymaker. But all of these groups would need to be involved in addressing this problem. Mm. Yeah, I mean, there's an incentive problem at the SPLC in particular because they they raise money based on remaining in a perpetual state of alarm about how bad this problem is. I mean, that's just you know, that's just a problem in with philanthropy in, in general, I mean, you just it, once your if your problem ever gets better, you know, then it's it's hard to to meet your budget, and so they've they've become, you know, so obviously mercenary, and I mean they've they've now really kind of immolated themselves in a variety of ways. I mean they're they're so woke over there that they 
published pieces telling us that Cinco de Mayo is just an, an unconscionable act of cultural appropriation, but apparently they're not woke enough to have escaped their own charges of, of racism internally and sexual harassment, and Morris Dees, the founder, just had to step down, as you probably know. So, I mean, they're just a mess over there, but I, I mean, I, I totally grant you that historically their lawsuits against the Klan and, you know, other white supremacist organizations were fantastic. I mean, that's a, of course, you want to sue the Klan into the ground. And, and if, if the fact that the government isn't on the case, you know, the, uh, it was great that the SBLC could step in. Yes. And all of the rest of, I, I, I don't want to comment on the recent stuff. I don't know enough to, you know, this is outside of my area, but I think it would be a real tragedy to let all of the organizational problems that you've just mentioned distract from the very real growing violent threat we face. Mm. And I mean, it's not just the SPLC sounding the alarm right now. I, I, I think you can look at other groups, including the ADL and, oh my God, I'm blanking on their name. Maybe we can look it up and come back and record it if you want it. Yeah. Although, I mean, I just, I got to say it is a, a more diffuse problem. I mean, I just had another organization, you know, Life After Hate that was started by uh, Christian Picciolini, you know, a former neo-Nazi skinhead who's now swung all the way to the left and is a, you know, a deprogrammer of neo-Nazi skinheads. And that's, you know, that's a fantastic character arc. And, and I would love to support that. And so loving to support that, I had him on the podcast to talk about the problem of white supremacy. But, you know, unfortunately on that podcast, he said a few things that were just frankly untrue and defamatory about some people. And when I afterwards fact-checked those things and I got, some, I got a lawyer letter from one person and, and it was just, it was clear that Christian was wrong about this person. And so when I asked Christian to give me evidence to back up his claim and he couldn't provide it, I said, listen, I, I just have to edit the podcast so that you're, you're not disparaging him on that point until the end of the world. And then Christian, again, so that this is just a, I don't know if you know Christian, but I mean, he's someone who in the immediate aftermath of a shooting like this will be given a special on MSNBC or he'll be interviewed in The Atlantic. I mean, he has a, a, a real profile and, and gravitas as a former member of the, these organizations. Because I edited him just to spare myself a, a lawsuit and to actually just be impeccable with respect to the, the kinds of defamatory things one says about even one's ideological enemies, he now is going around calling me a, a white supremacist. So there's a, kind, there's a kind of hysteria in the air around this and a lack of precision, which I think we have to overcome. I mean, there's, there's no question that white power, white supremacy, white nationalism, racism more generally, no question these are problems. And whether they are waxing or waning dangers, you know, I, I would want to know as, as much as anyone. But the problem is currently some, some of the most high-profile people in this space are fairly wacky and unscrupulous in how they make charges about this. And, and this is confounded by this additional problem of you, we're now confronted by a new generation of, uh, you know, sorry to go in the direction of psychopathology again, but of lunatics in the troll culture we're seeing on websites like 4chan and 8chan, where you have a circulation of these awful memes and, uh, you know, kind of general, you know, moral nihilism, which is often 
using white supremacy as its text, and then it's, then it becomes genuinely difficult to understand who's really a white supremacist or a racist, and who is just trafficking in Holocaust imagery or black-white racism imagery just to shock people and just to get laughs. People are spreading conspiracy theories that they, they might not even believe in just to see the normies like me freak out on their podcasts. So this trolling behavior is a very specific thing, which, I, you know, which seems like it's actually getting elevated to specific instances of murder, where, it's not, where it's, it's not clear that some of these manifestos are actually what they appear to be at first glance. And so I, just, I, I realize I've just dumped a lot on you. But I mean, as someone who's trying to make sense of this in public, in real time, I'm concerned that you know, we're, at least on certain points, in danger of committing the sins of those journalists and other uh, talking heads who, who spoke endlessly about you know, the McMartin preschool, for instance, or, or you know, the other examples of satanic panic that just evaporated. Sure. Okay. That was a great inhalation, Kathleen. <laughs> well, there's a big question, Sam. Yeah. I have to I have to think about where to start. I don't think the satanic preschools is a good comparison. I, I hope not. I'm just saying that's how, how crazy we've we've been in the past. The top spin you're getting from me is I mean, the SPLC is even as of last week the go to institution for the New York Times or the Washington Post to find out who's who. And I know they've completely lost their minds because I'm on their hate watch page, right? Well, let me ask you this. Um, it sounds like what you're hoping for is a sense of whether this is a large threat and whether it is getting bigger or smaller. Is that right? Yes, I would love to know that. I would love to know that too. And my bet is that the SPLC also would love to know that. Although as I, whatever you think about it, the reality is I don't know that anybody knows. And the reason is that we've had such an unequal distribution of resources to monitor and track domestic terror that I don't think we have much of any idea. I am a historian and I try to be really careful about speaking about the present because of the many pitfalls, some of which you've just outlined in sort of making prognoses about things that are near term. <laughs> but I think, I, I think what the archive can teach us is that we have not had a problem of overestimating this issue. We have had a ongoing problem of underestimating this threat. And the way that we know that is that we have huge acts of violence that happen over and over and over again. And we have not seen changes in policy and understanding that would keep people safe from them. Yeah, well, I guess it's, I mean, we have to define what what huge is. I mean, there are, I mean, to take Oklahoma City as the worst case thus far, right? So, you know, 168 people died. That was absolutely awful. And if it happened again tomorrow, you know, we would be talking about nothing else for quite some time. And, you know, I'm the first person to admit that body count is not the only way or, or even best way to, to evaluate how big a problem this is, because, you know, not all deaths are, are equivalent, right? I mean, I, I think the, what happens to our society on the basis of a few school shootings or an event like Oklahoma City, the fear that, that gets spread and, and, and our response under the shadow of that fear is just far more deranging of 
society for, for many more years than a, than a huge hurricane would be that might kill the same number of people. The hurricane comes in, kills a bunch of people, you know, we grieve and then we clean up, but there are no knock-on effects the way there are with, with an instance of ideological criminality of, of the sort we're talking about. So it's, it's hard to know what counts as an enormous problem when something that kills you know, merely a dozen people in an especially horrible way can be far more alarming than a problem that is orders of magnitude more in terms of body count. Sure. I, I think I'd rather that you're saying that, well, maybe I didn't hear the question. Perhaps you want to. So what do you do if someone comes back to you saying, well, you know, you're, you're talking about this as a, an enormous problem, but the reality is, is that white supremacists have killed on the order of 30 to 50 people a year for as long as you've been worrying about this, you know, Oklahoma City aside. And even that is not much of a, an uptick. So this is, a, you know, we're talking about people drowning in bathtubs, people getting struck by lightning on golf courses. Not a lot of people are dying. So why is this such a big problem? Well, there's a lot of answers to that. One is that terroristic death as you say, has an impact that is much larger than sort of an accident or fatality that happens in a more mundane way. These actions are meant to do more than simply kill the person they kill. They're actions that are meant to inspire terror. And possibly more concerning than that, given our political climate, they are violent act actions that are meant to awaken other people to the movement. So you know, McVeigh's picture is hung up in the rooms of people who are carrying out violent attacks today. That worked. And, and these, these, these shootings have a very profound impact on American society. And, and thinking beyond the white power movement about the ways that we now live in an age defined by the fear of a mass attack. I think of the poetry of Kathy Fish always when I think about this, but the the way that, I mean, we have people now who have survived two mass shootings um, after the Vegas shooting and the, yeah. the reunion shooting. That was a crazy story, yeah. I mean, I, I, I come from, you know, I come from the school district in Colorado where the Columbine shooting happened, and that was while I was in high school. The idea that it would become so pedestrian that we now live in an age where they don't even trend on Twitter is both mind-boggling and not entirely unexpected given the saturation of these events. But we have to think about the impact of violence on society in a way that is bigger than, as you just say, body counts. There's a lot, you know, it, it, this is a historian's answer, but there's actually a lot we can learn from the history of lynching in this regard because the comparative body count of lynching you know, people people spend a long time trying to count and trying to tally and trying to figure out what happened where at exactly what moment. But it turns out that the impact of lynching stretched far beyond the communities where it occurred. So one person's death would have a terroristic effect all over the place through photographs, through recordings and sound, through personal word of mouth. And thinking about these long histories of violence and the way that they affect people is really important, I think. Mm. Yeah, no, I, I I totally agree. I mean, it, it was, but it's just again, it's hard to quantify these things, and we we sort of have to, at least intuitively, when we 
decide how to marshal our resources? I mean, just how much time, attention, and money should the U.S. government spend on the problem of white supremacy? Sure. What are the most grandiose aspirations of these groups currently, and how bad could this get in the age of Trump? Because I I think many of us feel that even if we haven't been so focused on the fringe or the fringe of the fringe, we sense that the fringe has, has intruded far closer to the mainstream. And there's, there's just more of a, a sense that something like civil war could be possible, or if not civil war, just a lot of violence that would be uncharacteristic of our society. I mean, if you just imagine what it would take to really try to ban assault weapons, right? I'm like, what, what's that going to look like if we go to try to get the assault weapons from the, the people for whom gun ownership is their religion? What percentage of those people are, are animated by the kinds of ideologies we've been talking about? We, we have a sense that the society is deeply fragmented along lines that at first approximation do break along the, you know, the politics of extreme left and extreme right. You know, it's really interesting. I used to have a section in the book that addressed exactly this question of why is it so important to understand the fringe? And at some point, my book, you know, was considered by my editor to be in the mainstream. And she said, this is self-evident. We're striking the section. Mm. Um, I don't need it anymore because it's so clear that this is now central to our society. You know, that happened within just the years of writing and publishing a dissertation. That was very kind of public about face. I will say this, during the time, the time that I study, so the kind of late 1970s to 1995, has a lot in common with the present moment, including through lines connecting that generation of activists to what we see now, including um, similar kinds of violence chosen and prepared for. Um, you know, there are in the present attempts to steal nuclear weapons. There is in the present paramilitary training. There is attempts to get all kinds of other armament. And then there is, of course, the use of social networking and computers that was pioneered in the early 80s, but of course, is at a level of sophistication now that is certainly accelerated. I think the thing that is different about the current moment that is concerning is that the activists I study saw almost no hope of using mainstream politics to do what they wanted to do. Right. They write, they wrote a lot about, you know, we, the time for the ballot is over, it's time for the bullet. And they turned violent during the Reagan administration when arguably they had a lot to gain from the state. And when the state was actually anti-statist itself and in that very peculiar Reaganite way. But the idea that groups now could figure out how to take this into mainstream politics in an effective way, I think is very different. Um, And I think we're starting to see that succeed in different places around the world. This is a transnational movement now um, in a way that it was only aspiring to be in the 1990s. Mm, Yeah. And I think all of that, you know, makes me quite concerned. I think one of the reasons that it's important to pay attention to mass violence is that the way that people typically understand mass violence in their own community is through the lens of the impacted population. And this is a perfectly valid and very human response, right? 
So we get stories about the impacted group. We get stories about the Tree of Life shooting as being about anti-Semitism and El Paso as being about anti-immigration and Christchurch as being about anti-Muslim sentiment, right? And those acts are those things, but they're also connected with one another through this very clear political ideology shared by a set of perpetrators who um, often believe that they are together acting towards a common end. And I think that one hopeful thing that I find in that is that there is a potential to connect those communities together in sort of a, a, a coalition of impacted people that could better understand how we might respond to this threat. I mean, I don't think that the history doesn't caution us about hysteria. The history cautions us about non-response. So if you could implement any policy at this point, what would you do? Because I guess, and I guess, let me just anticipate that you think that the, the, the government has been too lax in paying attention to this problem and, and should be more intrusive. But the problem there is that government intrusion is what is so energizing. I mean, it's, it's the primary concern of people in this group. And this is why people are stockpiling weapons and they're concerned about surveillance and all the rest. I mean, it's the loss of freedom that most concern McVeigh. And so you sort of run into the problem of what happens when you begin to confirm the conspiracy thinking of the most conspiracy-addled conspiracy theorist. I mean, it's like the Branch Davidians were stockpiling weapons because they were sure that at some point the government was going to come in and victimize them. And they were stockpiling so many weapons so garishly that the government finally noticed and decided to come in and figure out what the hell was going on and wound up killing them. There is a self-fulfilling component to this. What would a response to this problem look like? I think more than that, the issue is also anyone who's concerned about paramilitary culture is, you know, reluctant to prescribe further use of paramilitarism as a solution because that, as you say, creates problems in all other areas of American life. I gotta say, like, when we think about solutions, I, and I should just bracket all of this by saying, I, as I said, I'm a historian, I'm not a policymaker. I think what the archive can show us is that there are real dangers to letting this go unaddressed and that the problems that we might endeavor to fix are what a scholar would call transcalar. And that's just a, a fancy word for being there. They're at every level of experience. So we're talking about not just, you know, a whole bunch of individual prejudice, not just a problem at the police office, not just there is no juror education, not just there is a policy issue at the FBI level or insufficient surveillance, not just the way the law is written. It's all of that together. So, I mean, what we would need is really a, a set of changes in how people understand what this is and how, how we might proceed from there. It's, it's everything from journalistic approach to public discourse to thinking about how we could better use resources. But, you know, when I say resources, I think people often assume I mean just additional surveillance. That's a resource. There's a lot of different kinds of resources, though. And we have some really captivating accounts from people uh, like Derek Black, who've left the movement, about how people can exit, about how people can mm -hmm. reach out to people in their community, about what other kinds of community might be sustaining 
about different kinds of social resources that could be extended to these groups. I think there's all kinds of different ways to think about it. And I mean, one thing that might be interesting is to go back to this example that got me into this project to begin with, the Truth and Reconciliation Commission. Those guys didn't come ha- have to come and testify at all. This, this commission was an NGO. It wasn't part of any government entity. It didn't have any subpoena power. It didn't have any you know, criminal penalty power. But people want to come and talk about their lives and their beliefs. People want to tell their stories. And there is, you know, enormous potential in that our country, our communities, our towns, our schools, we can do that work of facing each other and talking to each other. And I think that there's hope in it. Can you just clarify what a uh, Truth and Reconciliation Commission is? Oh, sure. So a Truth and Reconciliation Commission is a model of restorative justice, which is to say a way for people to come together around an event of injustice or violence in their community to try to talk through what happened and to try to figure out some solutions that help people feel that their experience has been addressed. So the famous example is in post-apartheid South Africa, there was a series of government-mandated Truth and Reconciliation Commissions that tried to both do the work of witnessing the violence that had happened and of trying to think about how communities and the country could move past it. I think there have also been TRCs. Um, I'm familiar with the one in Guatemala. There have been some in other countries. Yeah, Rwanda. Rwanda, never a large one in the United States, despite our long history of racial violence and injustice. Well, they they seem to, correct me if I'm, I'm wrong, but I associate them with circumstances where the prosecution of offenders. I mean, there were so many offenders, right? There's su- there's been such a massive moral turnover that the problem is is too big to address by normal criminal prosecution. So, like in Rwanda, you know, so many people grabbed a machete and killed their neighbors that you know you just can't, you couldn't possibly prosecute all these people. So, you have to sort of hit a kind of reset of the broken society. And this is this is one method of doing that. Exactly. So this one was organized by activists in the community. And people can read more about this in the book if you like. It's a full chapter. Or I encourage you to go look up the proceedings of the TRC, which are really interesting in and of themselves. But it's a it was an NGO, Truth and Reconciliation Commission, that, you know, impaneled itself, called witnesses, uh, looked for testimony, did archival work, and then created a report about what had happened at this shooting and why the criminal trials had never brought anyone to justice. Remind us what happened in Greensboro? So the Greensboro event in 1979 was a coordinated shooting by neo-Nazi and Klan gunmen who had come together under the the moniker the United Racist Front and set out to attack an anti-Klan demonstration held by the Communist Workers Party um, and other leftist activists in Greensboro. Um, They killed five people and injured several more. And the four of the men killed were white. And then one African-American woman was killed. The gunmen were recorded. There were three news cameras on scene. This whole 88 seconds was recorded from several different angles. You can see faces. You can see who's shooting at what time. But the state and criminal trials, uh, excuse me, state and federal criminal trials both acquitted all the gunmen on self-defense charges first and on a civil rights technicality second. And the there was a subsequent civil trial that found wrongful only one of the deaths. 
And the only one deemed wrongful was the one person that was not a card-carrying communist at the time of his death. So it's an issue where the community felt wronged in all kinds of different ways. Um, and the TRC process was designed to sort of sort through culpability and and figure out if there was some justice that could be found even these years later. So, so the need for a TRC there just was born of the fact that once this criminal proceeding had run, you, you couldn't, you, you have a double jeopardy problem. You can't prosecute these people again, right? That's right. And there's all kinds of things, you know, we talked a little bit about the relationship between a body count and the larger ramifications of violence from an event. But there's all kinds of things that aren't addressed in a criminal trial. For instance, this shooting happened in a black housing project that felt that they had neither held the anti-Klan demonstration nor, you know, responded to it with violence. But they found themselves in the crosshairs of this event. And, you know, people hadn't really apologized for this, even though there were curfews implemented and their lives were altered. And all of this uh, shapes the way a community works and forms relationships over a over the long sort of history of the event. Yeah. Well, thank you, Kathleen, for bringing this on the on the podcast. It's been an education. And uh, if people want to know more about your work in an ongoing way, I mean, the, the book, again, is Bring the War Home. But um, where can people find out more about you and follow you on Twitter and all the rest? Give us the, give us the relevant websites and Oh, sure. It's, uh, I'm, I have a professional website at KathleenBalou.com, and I think my Twitter is just Kathleen underscore Ballou. Mm. But if you search, I'm sure you'll find me, and I'm happy to be there. It's been great. Thanks again, and um, well, someday I'll have you back when this is no longer a problem, and we'll talk about how we live in a uh, colorblind society. And uh, can you imagine that anyone was ever organized around different ideas? Well, I hope that day is soon, and thank you very much for having me. Okay, well, that was interesting. That felt useful. I'm not sure how that changed my view of the problem, apart from certainly educating me about how incompetent the U.S. government has been in paying attention to the problem. It is fairly astonishing how inept we've been. As you may have noticed, I couldn't quite hold myself to the distinction between white power and white supremacy that she was making. Part of it is just that I think of white supremacy as the ideology and white power as the movement. She was making a different distinction and a fairly woke one, and uh, I didn't want to get into that. Clearly, for her, white supremacy includes more or less every form of structural racism and really every misdeed that can be leveled at the conscience of the West. Right. She was adding nuclear weapons and colonialism and the missteps of capitalism. I mean, it was everything. I don't think that's a very useful way to use that phrase, but I didn't want to get into it. As long as we're clear about what we're talking about, that's all that mattered for the purpose of this conversation. And here we were talking about white power, but I was occasionally calling it white supremacy and violating her use of the terms because I just couldn't keep the term straight. Anyway, I found that very interesting. She was very patient with me whinging about being called a white supremacist again and again. Thank you for that, Kathleen. As you could hear, I am fairly circumspect in my disinclination to join 
a moral panic. And I, I really do feel that we are in an age where moral panics are amplified. But I'm convinced this is a problem worth checking in on at regular intervals. I'm actually going to have Barry Weiss on the podcast soon. She has a book on anti-Semitism, which obviously connects here. And I think um, the next year of American politics will beat these same bushes relentlessly, and um, we will hear more about American extremism of the far right and the far left, and uh, perhaps of a sort that is as yet unimagined. And with that, I will leave you to it. Until next time. If you find this podcast valuable, there are many ways you can support it. You can review it on iTunes or Stitcher or wherever you happen to listen to it. You can share it on social media with your friends. You can blog about it or discuss it on your own podcast. Or you can support it directly. And you can do this by subscribing through my website at samharris.org. And there you'll find subscriber-only content, like my Ask Me Anything episodes, as well as the bonus questions from many of these interviews. You'll also get advanced tickets to my live events. You'll find all of these things and more at samharris.org. And thank you for supporting the show. Listeners like you make it possible.